in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money. Do you remember when we started this show in 2016 and I was all, 
la la la. How do you pay off your credit cards? How do you make a bank account? How do you do your student loans? Whatever I was up to uh, just innocently being like, what's a stock? And now I've aged 1000 years and we've gone full prison abolition. Welcome. Welcome to the episode profiting from locking people up. Why do I want to talk about this? Well, because uh, mass incarceration is in the news. Uh, Basically, racial justice and criminal justice reform and policing have led to more talk about prisons. Uh, And I'm going to go out on a crazy progressive limb here and say that I don't love the idea of people profiting off of putting people into jail and prison. So, I mean, I know this show is obsessively about me, but it's followed me throughout the years in terms of like how much more sophisticated and in depth I've become on the topics of money. And I just have been obsessively looking into private prisons for the last like month, which I understand is a thing that many people have been doing long before me and like, welcome, welcome to the world, Gabby. Which is why I wanted to talk to investigative reporter Joe Neff from The Marshall Project. The Marshall Project is a nonprofit journalism organization uh, that writes a lot about criminal justice. And um, so Joe has covered a lot of stuff regarding prisons, uh, especially in the wake of COVID-19, where prisons are uh, some of the biggest incubators for the pandemic and just, you know, basically how it's impossible to social distance and also that we don't treat people in jail or prison Uh, like human beings. So I had seen a lot of stuff where, you know, they charge prisoners for underwear and shoes and they charge prisoners for making phone calls and they charge prisoners for sending emails, which we get into with Joe. Uh, And just like the ways in which criminal justice is so punitive rather than correctional and is also a thriving fucking business, a business. So, okay, yeah, sorry. Here's our interview with uh, the Marshall Project's Joe Neff, who knows a lot more about this than I do. I understand that I am uh, a new, I'm new here. (laughs) So uh, can you tell my audience uh, about who you are and what you do, what you write about? Uh, Hi, my name is Joe Neff. I'm an investigative reporter at the Marshall Project. We are a nonprofit newsroom. We cover the criminal justice system and immigration. And for the past couple months, we've been covering COVID-19 and the protests following the killing of George Floyd. And we've just been working our asses off. Yeah, I'm sure. Um. So what what drew you to covering the criminal justice system? Uh, I started off a long time ago. One of my first jobs, I was covering the federal courthouse in Newark, New Jersey, and I just found criminal justice to be an endlessly fascinating uh, subject that gives you such a great and important lens into how our country really works. When did you start to realize that it was sort of flawed or that there was a lot to cover like right away or yeah right away i mean there's so many uh, different beats you can have in uh medicine the military politics and they all are deep in their own ways but this uh the criminal justice really gives you um 
a sense of who who has power in this country and who doesn't and mm-hmm. what our values how do we treat our fellow citizens uh, how do we treat people who aren't citizens and it's a pretty stark it's a it's a pretty stark portrait yes so i was reading um some of the reporting on um prisons and COVID-19. And uh, basically, the I, I had seen people tweeting about this, but I read a lot of the pieces on the Marshall Project. And basically, there's no there's no social distancing, there's no testing, there's no consideration for the people in prison. And as you said, it is this sort of stark image of like who we value, whose lives we value. So is that is that kind of I mean, when you've been covering that, is that what you've been seeing? Like, is that sort of what you've been trying to shed light on? Oh, absolutely. We knew right when COVID was popping up, if anyone who's if you've ever spent any time in a a prison or a jail, uh, you know that their social distancing is impossible. That these are facilities that are almost seem to be designed to spread uh, disease in close quarters. And, and and you know that there's staff going in and out every day. And especially in jails, there are people going, getting arrested, bailing out, people going in and out every day. So it's just uh, a perfect system for spreading a disease like this. I was just looking on the New York Times, the top list of the, the top 10 outbreaks in the country, uh, nine of them are in prisons. Right. And that's, I think, something that people don't think about, because I think most people maybe don't know the difference between prison and jail. If you could just for my audience um, explain that like briefly. Okay, so a jail is in general, you are awaiting trial. It's after your arrest. If you can't afford to bail out, you spend your time in jail before you plead guilty or go to, um, or go to trial. And so jails, you're a lot of traffic in and out. You may spend weeks or months there prisons. It's after you've been convicted or pled guilty of a crime and your time in a prison system is generally measured in years. So there's, you spend a long time, longer time in prison in general, but there's not the churn and burn of a jail. Prison is, is such a, a business. And I think like, you know, making money off of just insanely high, high bails. But like, in terms of like, when did prison sort of become like a, a money making venture or like a thing that that people could turn a, a profit from prisons and jails? Well, we can go back to right after the Civil War, when um, yep. slavery ends, uh, the the black laws come in, and you had convict labor. And, 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 and a business owner, a farmer, could hire uh, people who were in the local penitentiary or in the jail. And it was almost worse than slavery. At least the plantation owner had an incentive to take good enough care of, of the enslaved people so that they could work and continue working and laboring for the plantation owner. After the Civil War, this hired convict, they the conditions were abysmal and they could just work people to death, literally, and then just go and hire some more from the local sheriff or the local warden. 
Yeah, I think people have this this incorrect idea that slavery ended. And what basically happened is they created laws that disproportionately targeted black people and then brought them through the prison system back into slavery, but with um, even more turnover. And so it, it, it did not <laughs> it did not end in the way that white people seem to think it did. Um, Correct. So basically, how does a private prison work as a business? Okay, now, so private prisons uh, basically started in the 80s, so they're uh, they're not directly related to what we we're just talking about, the hired convict later. Right. Uh, during the Reagan years, let's turn to a private company because they can manage more than a government entity. Um, so he, how they make money in general is that the s- state and uh, most prisoners are in state facilities. There's also the federal system, but that's only a couple percentage of, of um, prisoners in this country. So a state will pay a private prison company uh, X dollars a day to house a prisoner. And mm-hmm. a couple ways that they make money. One is that uh, staffing. A prison's biggest cost is paying the staff, the correctional mm-hmm. officers, the warden, the, the teachers, the nurse. So that's their big cost. And one of the ways that you can make a lot of money running a private prison is by understaffing. So, and the Marshall Project, mm-hmm. we've written a number of stories about this, especially two I wrote about um, what goes on in Mississippi. So you may have a, a prison that's supposed to have, let's say, 60 people on every shift. And if you only have 30 people show up for work and you're only paying 30 rather than 60, well, then that's pretty, you can make a lot of money that way by short staffing. And this is this is a problem mm-hmm. at, at, at prisons uh, across the country, both public, because um, even in public prisons, they don't pay enough. Uh, for people to want um, to keep these jobs, considering how mm-hmm. stressful and unpleasant they can be. But it's especially uh, a, a big problem in private prisons. So there's a prison um, I've covered a lot down in uh, the southwest corner of Mississippi, uh, the Wilkinson County Correctional Facility. I've talked to uh, correctional officers there who tell me that the overnight shift you're supposed to have a minimum of 31 people working the prison at night. And I've talked to, I asked the officers, what's the lowest you've had in a, uh, in terms of staffing on a, on a night shift? Oh, three or six. <gasps> yeah. Oh I've, had, I've heard this from, from a dozen different correctional officers. So, uh, there is a huge problem there with the short staffing and with the, um, and, and the short staffing, not only does it make um, the, the company more money, but it also makes the prison more dangerous because you can't run a safe prison with a thousand medium and maximum security inmates with just three or six people running the place. Yeah, I mean... There's like so much to unpack. I'm sorry if I if I seem scattered all over the place because I know that there's like, you know, a whole thing on like 
the use of the labor of the of the prisoners and uh, like the way that in which we use them to to fight fires, for example. And those are prisoners from federal prisons primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then which is slave labor, uh, because when they get out, they're not allowed to use the skills they just learned about fighting fires to become firefighter, which is why. But um but so for so for private prisons, I mean, they're saving money by not paying. But then what inside the prison, I imagine, becomes complete chaos. It can come com- complete chaos or it can just become a boiling cauldron of, of frustration and resentment. Because if you only have six people watching a thousand uh, men, the only way to control the situation is to lock down the prison put everyone in their cells. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have situations where uh, uh, prisoners may not, you know, they'll instead of getting their out of their cell at least once a day uh, to go to the, to go to rec, to go to the yard, to get some exercise, to take a shower, um, to go to a class. Mm-hmm. I, I've talked with uh, prisoners who just were locked in for weeks at a time. And the food is delivered right. through a little slot in the door. You get a styrofoam tray of some questionable quality food. Right. And you just, if you're locked in your cell with someone that you maybe you're a friend with or maybe you can't stand, but if you're locked 24 hours a day for weeks at a time, you just imagine how frustrated mm-hmm. human beings can get. Yeah, it's completely dehumanizing. I mean, I was I was watching a video where it really struck me where a person was talking about private prisons and they were like, it it's not what you can make money off of, it's what you morally should make money off of. Um, and so like who who is making money off of this stuff? I Googled the two biggest companies and I their websites were dystopian nightmares. Um, so who who is largely turning a profit off this and ha- how do they when you if you interview them or when you talk to them, what's their justification? Okay, so uh, a couple things that uh, private prisons, just to back up slightly, private prisons only sure. contain about 6% of the prisoners in the country. Most mm-hmm. people are locked up by in state or uh, uh, in state systems where we, the mm-hmm. citizens and the taxpayers, are, are hiring public servants to run and work in these prisons. So most of it are most of them are publicly run. Um, so the way that um, these big companies respond to questions is generally not at all. Uh, I I almost never have a face to face, let alone a telephone interview uh, with these these companies. They're just not responsive to questions. Uh, as a reporter. I have to make sure that no one is surprised by anything that's in my story because that would be unfair. So we end up sending questions, a long list of questions and facts. This is what we have. And if we are wrong on it, let us know if you have any responses. But generally, we don't, we don't get our questions answered right. about what's your justification or are you, why are you doing this? Is this true? I feel like they're it doesn't because it doesn't matter. They have they're still making a profit. So but the thing also is that like 
they're also providing detention services. So like similar to ICE or like immigration or, you know, uh, I mean, the the go to the websites. I don't know if you I'll talk shit. You don't have to. Core Civic and GEO Group. Uh, if you go to their websites, the the use of euphemisms is real, real cute. Um, so let me let me let me let me cut you off there on this. Is that the three big okay. ones? You're right. Core Civic, Geo, and a company called MTC Management and Training Corporation. They're smaller, but those are okay. the big three. Now they not only run prisons, they also run, like you say, detention centers. Um, and they also run uh, halfway houses where like mm-hmm. these smaller facilities that are like a holding tank halfway between being in prison and being out in, in society. Right. So they they can make money that way. Uh, there's also a whole other uh, private prison industry where companies provide services to the prison. Uh, and a lot of these are really it's monetized and there's a lot of criticism that has been leveled at these companies. For example, for example, inmate phone calls. If you, if someone wants to contact their loved one inside prison, they have to sign up with whichever company, it's usually Global Telling or JPay, um, to uh, make phone calls. And it costs. And you sign up for an account and you have to pay for phone calls. You have to pay. You can, if you want to send emails out, you have to pay uh, for the emails. If you uh, want to do a video visitation, which is actually an industry term, it's not a visitation. It's just a video call. You have to pay for it. Uh, and and you can. The deeper that you go into these ver- variety of contracts. Uh, so much of the services in prisons are pri- have been privatized. A company makes even meals. in federal prisons. Oh yeah, in federal prisons, in state prisons, in county jails. Right. So you'll have a, a company that maybe um, uh, is is hired to uh, cook and serve the food, the three meals a day. That company also may have the vending machines and commissary if you're because if you're revolted by uh crummy prison food or there's not Mm -hmm. enough of it then you can go to the commissary or vending machines and buy your uh, crackers of peanut butter and snacks and peanut butter or ramen um you you can buy you can buy you know shoes or uh, slippers to wear or uh, underwear or shampoo or soap. Uh, all of that is is sold to the inmates to the prisoners, and usually the money comes out uh, of their families. You know that they families fill the um, uh, commissary account so that the prisoner can can buy these things to get by. Well, this is a racist scam. Okay, so who? Let's get into that. So, who is is largely targeted to fill these prisons? Because I I was reading about, um, you know, that they make a certain amount of money per bed, and like, is this, like, it's? It, I mean, everyone knows that it's like disproportionately people of color, specifically black people, I- in prison. Correct. Yeah, a dispropor- uh, black and, and uh, people of color, Latinx, make up a disproportionate uh, amount of people 
locked up in prisons and jails. Uh, there's plenty of white people in, in prison and jails too, but they're not. There's they're represented less than uh, you know their percentage of of American population. And I imagine class-wise, the white people that are in prison are uh, lower income people. That's in, just in general. In general, having uh, money means that you can uh, afford a good lawyer or or a lawyer at all, um, and not an overworked right. public defender. So, sure, uh, class definitely right. is an issue. Okay, we need to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. So people are profiting off mass incarceration of mostly people of color. Obviously, there's protests going on for racial justice. Like, how is this being incorporated into the conversation? Because I'm having a little bit of, like, a disconnect that I was talking about on Twitter yesterday where it's like, you know, obviously we want to arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. We want to arrest the cops who killed Elijah McClain, things like that. But they're going then into a system that is, you know, doesn't jive with like prison abolition, which is something that I've become more and more interested in. So like how, how, how are you seeing in reporting or what you've been reporting on? Like, how are these conversations mashing like mashing together if they are at all well they're just uh the the threads of conversations about criminal justice about prisons about policing they're just there are thousands of different ways that it can go i think that uh what's helpful when thinking about uh policing when thinking about prisons is what is the core function here? What is policing about? Is it about control or is it about keeping uh, people safe and keeping a vibrant community? Do you view the people that they protect as their neighbor or do they perceive them as their enemy? I mean, I, I think that right. me, most people would agree that, well, we want to have a safe community where we're you know we're neighbors, and we can all we can all get along and live good, productive, creative lives. But if you have an us versus them mentality, and a lot of police training uh, has a there's this whole school of uh, programs that teach police to be warriors. Well, then your right. police are civilians, as are you, you and I, and every and everyone mm -hmm. else, and. I don't know if we should be going to war on civilians. The police aren't at war civilians. Police should be protecting and um, making the whole community a safe place. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, and it's helpful, too, to pull away what is the, what's the mission of police. Is it uh, they, 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 if you talk to police or you talk to especially you talk to any county sheriff county sheriff has uh as as a jail full of people and every sheriff i have ever talked to will say we're supposed to uh care for there's so many people in here who are homeless who suffer from addiction well we're not uh substance abuse counselors here. We're not trained uh, psychologists. We have people who are mentally ill. We are not mental health providers. 
there is so much that the county sheriff has to provide in services that they're just not cut out to do and they're not funded to do enough. So I think the conversation should be about who is best suited to, at least when it comes to policing, to to respond to calls. Most calls are not about a murder or violent crime. It's about, I'm sick. My, uh, maybe someone in the household is having a, a psychotic episode or their mm-hmm. parent and child or partner and partner. Yeah, you, there's probably a lot, um, a, a way to provide those to respond to those calls that are, do not need someone to show up uh, in a uniform with a gun who's trained who's not trained to be a social worker or a mental health worker. And then when it comes to prisons, what, what is the point of prisons? Uh, they call them correctional facilities or places of rehabilitation, but there's precious little correction going on in so many, or rehabilitation in so many of the prisons in this country. It's, it's punitive, it's underfunded, it's understaffed, and it's not good for the people locked up and it's not healthy for the people who are locking them up either physically or emotionally. And in, in a lot of places in Europe, the idea, and especially in Northern Europe, the idea of a prison is to prepare someone to rejoin the community. How do we get this person into a place where they're a productive and happy member of the community? And there's precious little of that going on in our country. There is some, but that's not the that's not the rule. Yeah, prison is largely, I think, in people's minds, focused on like justice, quote unquote, which is actually sort of like revenge. Um, and then, you know, I think they're filled with people who have committed very small crimes. And also like, cause you know, then when you start talking about prison reform or prison abolition or like, you know, correction or reform or like teaching people or whatever, everyone's like picturing in their mind, like a vampire rapist or something like they're not picturing like someone like they're not picturing fellow human beings, which I think is, is the problem. Um, And also the problem is that like, it it may it's an industry like you're making an industry of this it's it's making money um it's a it's a big industry like, it is it's huge i i was i was looking at before trump was elected the stock sort of plummeting in these companies and then um there being pressure for banks and and other places to divest from private prisons and then um i saw that basically they just go to international banks like i think the the thing I read mentioned Japan um, is that sort of like, are, is there some sort of like backlash on like, okay, we have to, you know, this is, this is either costing the government money or, Oh, we're losing investments in private prisons. So like, how are we gonna, you know, like, how are we going to make this profitable? Or like, is there some sort of awakening of, of, um, you know, either, either public pressure to to not do it or like awakening of like oh maybe this is bad well it's a complicated landscape i mean first of all the um the private prison companies uh and the private prison supply companies who sell the snacks or provide health care phone they uh they hire lobbyists and they also give a lot of money in political 
contributions. And if you're looking to yep. get if you're looking to get contracts in a state, uh, whether it's uh, you know Oregon or uh, Alabama or Nebraska, it's not that hard to go to uh, the state capitol, meet the right legislators, and convince them that you're gonna you've got the best product and you're gonna save the state money and uh so and that that's that's an issue with the fact that we have 50 different state correctional systems where most of the people are are locked up in um as far as the 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 banks that are lending um if 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 a prison company has a uh lucrative contract they're going to be able to find financing somehow. Sometimes it's bank loans. Sometimes they can issue bonds. Uh, some, uh, the two big companies, CoreCivic and GEO, are both organized as REITs, real estate investment trusts, which have this great tax advantage. As long as you repay 90% of your earnings each year to your shareholders, you basically have no have a very low tax load. And it's complicated, and the, the given the current uh, financial crash due to the pandemic, yeah, this is not the REIT structure for these two big companies is uh, kind of in uh, in danger for them right now. There's going to it's complicated, but they're it's it's a troublesome model for them uh, right now. But I, I think the the the, the one of the things that we as citizens can do is raise the question, why are we locking up so many people? How much is it? Yes. How much is it costing us? You know, we cost $40,000 to keep someone in a Pennsylvania prison a year while you could send that person to community college for, uh, you know, $6,000 a year. You could send them to a full-blown state school for maybe $18,000 a year. You know, what What would be a better investment for our country in the long run? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, I think and, and why and why are we why are we doing this? And it's not just the actual number cost that forty two thousand dollars a year. All of these have what economists like to say opportunity costs. That's that we're paying to lock someone up and they're not out there working. Making a month, making money, supporting yeah. a family, and paying taxes. So the cost is as actually a lot and cynical higher. As that is, yeah. Well, it's, it doesn't have to yeah. be capitalist. It could be, it could be, you know, democratic socialist. Don't we want people to have jobs? Don't we want them to contribute? Yeah. Uh, to to help pay for roads and schools and healthcare and arts mm-hmm. and parks and things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so obviously if they're just looking to cut costs and they don't care about people and also like that, I think the society at large has this very wrong idea that everyone in prison is violent and that everyone in prison uh, is out to get them specifically or whatever people think like with COVID. I mean, is it just that it just doesn't it cost it would cost too much money to take to do anything about that in prisons to to. It would cost too much money or or be too much of an inconvenience to like 
do anything in terms of stopping all the huge outbreaks that are happening? Well, one of the things that we could do uh, to, uh, to, that would actually save money would be to start letting a lot of people out. I'm, I'm talking to you from North Carolina, has about 30,000 state inmates, about, uh, about 1,200 of them at the time when COVID started coming here were on work release. These are um, prisoners who we trust to go out in the community, catch a bus, drive to work, go to work in the governor's mansion, or go to work at the chicken plant. We trust them to go out in society every day. By definition, they could be out in the free world. Bingo, 1,200 people that you could let out. You have all sorts of people mm-hmm. who are, the, the prison populations are aging. In the 90s, we went mm-hmm. on this tough on crime um, binge and we made uh, longer sentences for more crime. So you have um, a prison population in this country that is much older than it used to be. And what is the utility of locking up old people? It's it's the research bears it out. Um, most of prisoners are men. Women, unfortunately, when it comes to crime, don't uh, do their fair share. So all, there's all these men <laughs> in in prison, and and it's Sorry, that was funny. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Um, the the uh, the men in prison. It's shown that as you age, uh, you just your risk of committing crime really reduces. The testosterone levels go down. The, uh, your, the frontal cortex of the brain matures by age 25. And why are we locking up hundreds of thousands of people in their 50s and 60s? Um, now, some of these people, uh, if you go on an individual basis, I wouldn't want to let them out uh, given you know their, their criminal histories. But by and large, the, as people age, they just age out of uh, of criminal conduct. And so why are we having all these old people? And it's expensive to lock them up. Why not let them out and uh, have them find jobs and regain a life? Yeah. And criminal conduct. I mean, I think criminal conduct is a big umbrella where like, I think people are envisioning like murderers and rapists and pedophiles. And like, maybe they robbed, maybe this person like robbed a store or like, you know, I, I think like, And like we're talking about people who are like largely nonviolent or, you know, maybe their violence was against property. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of, you know, of of violent crime. Uh, Assault is a, you know, is a problem. Domestic violence is is a problem. But then Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes uh, the the other thing is how much of what's actually driving the crime? Is it is it is it property? Uh, is it is it substance abuse that um, mm-hmm. you know is supporting a that was, a habit? Yeah. Is it uh, is it is it poverty uh, that you know mm-hmm. trying to put especially for women keeping food on the table for children uh, right. is an issue? Uh, is it uh, you know domestic violence in the way that uh, so many women who are in prison are? Uh, are just kind of following their poorly chosen partner in his life of crime or in his scam or in, you know, so 
Uh, yeah, they're being they're being abused. They're being manipulated. Right. So it's the the question to ask is, uh, well, there's that saying, you know, when, if your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. What is the problem mm-hmm. um, that puts people into, uh, you know, violating our norms and violating our laws? And what's the best mm-hmm. way to work uh, to help them get out of that? Okay, it's time for one last break, and then we'll be right back. And we're back. Um, so obviously, like you talked about different states having different systems. Um, and I, you know, political parties are divided where I think a lot of really progressive candidates were talking about banning private prisons. Um, and then that may have hurt them in terms of like donations and stuff like that. Like how, how is it divided? Is it, or yeah, what, what's the division in political parties or states on, on the issue of private prisons? Well, in general, the, uh, democratic party is much less in favor of private prisons. President Obama, in 2016 announced that uh, the phasing out federal government wouldn't use private prisons anymore. Uh, President Trump was elected. And as you mentioned before, the stock and core civic and geo went up overnight. Uh, The Republican party in general has been more hospitable to, uh, to private prisons, but some, uh, there are a lot of, uh, there is a a movement in conservative among conservative politicians, among evangelicals, among uh, more libertarian politicians that um, they don't if they they would a want people to get out and become good employees and become good citizens, and they don't see that private prisons are helping that. And B, there's among, especially among libertarians, and uh, that there is a distrust of government. And so, if 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 government um, is going to lock you up for violating the law, they have to prove it, and then they have to carry out their obligations. Uh, letting privatizing core functions of justice, like depriving someone of liberty by putting them in prison, is awful you know, scary to many, many people, both on the right and left. Should mm-hmm. you, should you privatize these core functions of, of justice and liberty? Would we privatize our military? Would we just say, Hey, let's just hire, get rid of the department of defense and hire, uh, companies to go fight wars for us. You say, you know, so I just think that it, uh, that is the, argument against private prisons that I hear from all parts of the political spectrum. Should we privatize justice? Should we make, um, build monetary incentives that the more money that a company can make more money by doing things like, uh, short staffing or, uh, in many states, you can't get out. Some states, you can't get out of prison until you get a GED. And if the private prison doesn't offer the services or drags out the services, then you can't get out of prison until you get your GED. So, um, 
to have some of these incentives that are built into the private correctional system are uh, perverse at best. That's a great way of putting it. Um, just briefly before we end, um, I wanted to ask about we, we you mentioned Trump and the system changing. Um, and I know that private prisons have been used more as ice, deten- uh, ice detention centers. Can you can you talk about that a little bit about like that, I guess, under Trump, that being used more for like immigration detention and yeah. increased immigration detention? Although, to be fair, it was happening under Obama. Oh, it's it's if you go to the Marshall Project, we have a, a really good documentary we did uh, on the history of of immigration and detention. Uh, done by my colleague Emily Cassie. Um, so the, yes, Obama and and Bush and Clinton before had uh, turned to more detention to stop people or who were who were arrested after uh, crossing into the United States. But it's really taken off under Trump and the the private detention companies. The same ones who've run private prisons, Geo and Core Civic, have have gotten a lot of business running these uh, detention centers. And there's other private entities that uh, that do so as well. And so this is um, it's a it's a profitable business for these companies. And one of the problems with the detention centers, as with prisons and jails, is that they're cut off from society. You, it's not easy to see what's happening inside a detention center or prison. When you, you know, police, we get a sense of what they do because they're out on the street. They're in a car. We see them arresting people. We see them at providing security at a parade or whatever. They do their work mostly in public. What goes on in a prison or detention facility, the public has very little insight into what's going on there because it's behind barbed wires, it's behind bar, it's behind walls, and we just don't know what goes on in there. And that's a, I think that's a a, a fundamental issue. So, what can people do if they want, other than obviously going to the Marshall Project and reading all of your stuff? Um, what can people do if they're like, "Hey, wait a minute, this sucks." <laughs> Well, I, I think that uh, the, if, if people are unhappy uh, with how our, our uh, government is functioning, you know, we're the taxpayers, we're the voters. If we don't like what's going on, then you go out and you vote. And it starts, the police are run our city function. So that's your city councilman and the mayor. The sheriff's a county function, uh, your county commissioner's you know, in general, run the jails. And the state prison system is run by and fund is funded uh, and, and the laws are made by our local representatives. So if you don't like uh, something that's going on in society, you can go out and vote for someone who will change what you don't like. Uh, and that is, I think, fundamentally the, the politics at the local city and county level and at the state level are, if you're at all concerned about the criminal justice system, that's where your vote is absolutely important. And if uh, if there's voter suppression, then uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, everything's bad. Um, 
Well, thank thank you so much. And I think like I think a lot of people, if you guys are interested, please go to the Marshall Project and please read Joe Neff's articles um, and everybody's articles of the Marshall Project. It's a fantastic website and organization. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, the themarshallproject.org. And just to say one last footnote, just to make sure that we are all reporters at the Marshall Project. We have a couple fundraisers. We're not advocates. We feel that the way to fix things is to provide more information, shed more light, to bring things out uh, into plain sight. So we don't we don't have a we don't advocate for any policy or another or one or another, but we do want to expose how the system works to the world. That's our goal. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Obviously, I could have talked to Joe Neff all day. I think that was clear. I was a little bit all over the place in terms of like what I wanted to talk about because I wanted to talk about so much. Um, And I think like if you go back and read his pieces, I mean, it's pretty clear that prison itself was born out of slavery and it was born out of keeping slavery going. Depending on what school you go to, if you learn about this or not, but laws were created specifically to target black people to to put them back into the system where they, wherein they could be made to keep working for free. Uh, and, and it doesn't take someone who studied this to know that uh, black and Latinx people are disproportionately targeted for imprisonment and for nonviolent crimes. And even, you know, Joe mentioned for somewhat violent crimes, for for mental health issues, for, you know, things that people could be rehabilitated for, that they're just they're just thrown away by society. And you we really need to rethink what we believe prison, federal or private, is for and who is profiting off of it and who is making money off of it. Um because the idea that this type of thing is a business here when in other countries it's not cough, cough, healthcare as well. Oh God, don't cough. You'll end up with millions of dollars in hospital bills. The point is not everything has to make a goddamn profit. And the things that do like just take a second and be like, why? Thank you for listening. Make sure you've subscribed to our show on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns, and our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will see you next week. <laughs>